listening to From the Friars podcast, the community of Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, headquartered in the Bronx, New York City. Good afternoon and welcome. I greet you with the greeting of St. Francis. May the Lord give you his peace. Amen. Well, today it feels like the Lord is giving us something other than his peace, huh? Oh boy, flipping the tables. What is happening? Um, anybody in the mood to be challenged today? Woo, Brother Pius, this homily's for you, okay? So if you feel like I'm judging you, I'm not. I'm just judging him, all right. <laughs> Jesus flipping the tables. Um, so we're halfway through Lent, and Mother Church gives us this story, these readings, because it's time to be challenged. It's time to be challenged. We know the background on what's happening for the Jewish people, their whole faith, their whole religion, it all centered on the temple and the sacrifices and whatnot. And there was a scheme where you had to trade in whatever currency you had to get the special temple money that didn't have any images on it um, that were unacceptable. And, and then you would buy your animals for sacrifice and they were cheating people. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, the just anger of the Lord turning the temple, which is the house of the Father. It's supposed to be a house of prayer and worship, and it's where you're getting cheated. You're getting, you know, uh, so, yeah, so Jesus comes, and he he's flips the tables, and um, so the uh, Mother Church gives us this story today, and if you look at the readings for ma uh, prayers for Mass, it becomes clear we're supposed to be praying if Jesus was to walk into this chapel right now, what would be the tables that he would flip over? You know, and that's a question for each one of us to pray about. You know, what would it be, you know, that parts of us that are corrupt, that we need the Lord to challenge us? And the key is in the first reading. In the first reading, we have the story of the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus. Those Ten Commandments we know so well and it begins with the first commandment, and the first commandment is put God first. The first commandment is put God first. Have no other gods, no other strange idols, put God first. And I thought, you know, in some ways, I feel like the other nine commandments are really just commentary on the first commandment. And uh, when you go to confession, which I highly recommend getting to confession during Lent, I almost wonder if we should, ever, we should preface every sin we confess with, I broke the first commandment. Because <laughs> every sin possible, everything we do, you could say on some level, I didn't put God first. Huh? There it is. And so when you take that insight, along with Jesus flipping over the tables, and I was praying about that. I'm like, Lord, what would, be, what would be my table that you would need to flip over? Like my idols and the ways that I'm not putting God first. And um, I had a funny memory, which I want to share with you. When I was five years old, it was 1977. Some of you might remember, some of you don't. And in 1977, the first Star Wars movie came out. Now I'm talking about the original, not these recent fake ones. Okay. The original Star Wars. <laughs> and at five years old, I was old enough to be completely and totally into it, like really, really into it. But I was still young enough where I didn't actually realize it was fake or it was just a movie. I thought it was real. So I would go out at nighttime, like looking in the skies, like waiting to see these spaceships. So I had this memory, for, for those of you who don't know the story, um, there's a main character, Luke Skywalker, which is a great name, huh, Luke, okay. And um, 
he has to go for this training. He's this little Jedi, this little guy that looks like Brother Pius, Yoda. And he, he's training Luke Skywalker, and Brother Pius can imitate his voice. There is no try, only do. See? <laughs> There's more where that came from, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, if you hear a lot of laughter over in the woods over there, it's us, okay. Um, and so, in the movie, Luke Skywalker has to go into this cave, this cave, just like a presence of evil, and you have to like face up to something in yourself. So he goes down into this cave and he sees the main villain, Darth Vader. Darth Vader is this big, you know, evil guy, and Luke Skywalker is able to defeat him. And then, as Darth Vader falls, Darth Vader wore this like helmet and mask. The mask burns away, and and Luke Skywalker sees his own face. You remember that? Remember as a kid thinking like, what's that all about? You know, like, and um, it was only later as I got older, I started to understand. I think the point of that scene was that he had to confront that evil part of himself. And so that memory came back to me praying over these readings today. And my friends, I think the number one idol, so this part of the homily is going to get a little uncomfortable. The number one idol for most of us, if not all of us, and I think it has something to do with the culture that we're growing up in right now, it is the worship of self, selfishness. We are seeing a pandemic of selfishness. And if you really dig down and examine your conscience, you start to realize, you know, so much selfishness. You know, we have so much comfort, so much abundance. You think about the billions and billions and billions of dollars that get spent on nothing, entertainment and sports and, you know, idols. But even in the midst of the false idols of our day, and if you look at actually every sin, what's there really is selfishness, worship of self. And I'll never forget the first time my spiritual director said to me, the best summary or description for the, the spiritual life is the journey from being selfish to being selfless. The journey from being selfish to being selfless. And yes, my friends, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here, you're praying, we're in church, we're trying to be good. But it's even for those of us who are devout, it can be secret and subtle. Even sometimes in the good things we do, there is always some selfishness there. And so in the season of Lent, we're heading towards the cross. The cross of Jesus is the moment when we see the greatest example of selflessness. Jesus offering himself that agape love of God. And it's beautiful. And so I'm going to conclude by sharing with you a story. Um, part one of the story is right now. And then part two is going to be at the holy hour after mass. So um, I had this beautiful experience. Um, several years ago, I was a chaplain for a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And we got to see a bunch of beautiful things from the Bible, the life of Jesus. And I had received a gift and I was praying in Calvary. So in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, in that church is Calvary where Jesus was crucified. It's now a chapel and his empty tomb. They're very close to each other. And as I was there praying at Calvary, I received the gift of tears. And the early church fathers talk about there's the water of baptism, and then there's the water of the tears. It's like a second baptism. It's a deeper conversion. And as I was there praying at the place where Jesus was crucified, 
And I was asking the Lord, help me to go deeper. Help me to understand more deeply, like, what is this all about? And that's where I, I started to experience the radiation of his love from the cross and the ugliness of sin. And I was weeping. I was weeping for the, um, the ugliness of sin. And we know that Jesus took all of sin, all of our sins, all of the sin of everybody to that cross. And as, as I was praying and weeping and thinking about this, and the, the Lord granted me just a little touch of the, the pain of that reality, then it, it kind of switched over. And um, I experienced something. Well, you may have heard on the internet, there's all these rumors of prophecies. Maybe there's going to be like a chastisement or a three days darkness. And some people were proposing there may be this illumination of conscience when God is going to grant a grace to the entire world where we will see ourselves in the light of God. It sounds very similar to what the children of Fatima received. They talked about when Mary came, there was the light of God and they saw themselves in that light. I experienced that at Calvary. And so not only was I weeping for the sins of the world, but then I started to weep for my own sins. And I received the grace where I could deeper intuition of just uh, the ugliness and pain of my sin. And then it deepened and it spread to all the sins I was going to commit in the future. Not like a clear idea, but just a sentiment of like the totality of sin. And uh, the thing that really came forward so clearly for me, my friends, it's selfishness. All of that, at the heart of it all, for each one of us, it's selfishness. And that selfishness seen in the light of Jesus's love on the cross. So I wasn't feeling condemned. I, I'm not saying this to make us all feel bad or increase Catholic guilt, but there was this profound moment, this revelation, this deeper awareness of the ugliness of selfishness, the idol of self-worship, in the light of the agape love of God, this love of Jesus in his offering. And I think this is what uh, helps us to understand more clearly what's happening with these flipping of the tables. This Jesus who's provoking the corruption and sin, we need him to do that in our own lives as well. And again, it's never, he, he doesn't do that to condemn us, but rather it's an invitation. Not only does he want to forgive us our sins, he wants to heal us, the damage that sin does. He wants to offer us eternal life. But most of all, he wants to deliver us from the prison of selfishness, that we could love like he loves, that agape love of God, that giving of self. No one has a greater love than to lay down their life for others. It is the greatest love that Jesus showed us on the cross, and he's inviting us to that love. But in order to love that way, the selfishness has to die. We have to be purified. We have to be purged of that. And um, so part two of that will come in the holy hour for those who'd like to stay after mass for the holy hour. But let us give thanks to the Lord, the grace of his great love and how it cleanses us of everything that is not loving. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. With this beautiful inspiration during the Sundays of Advent and Lent, we would have a holy hour after the Mass. This time of, in culture, so many people have a very difficult time focusing, sitting in silence, or surrounded with constant noise, especially young people.
And so the remedy is to sit in the humble, sometimes silent presence of Jesus in Eucharistic adoration and um, giving the Lord an opportunity to speak to our hearts. We have a beautiful gift being here in the Lord's presence. We have First Friday adoration here from 9 p.m. till midnight. And so just a few nights ago, oh, the church was just packed all those hours. It was so beautiful to see so many people coming out, making an extra effort to spend time with the Lord. Just beautiful. And of course, first Saturday yesterday. Um, and now uh, this beautiful holy hour. Um, so there were a few details with the story that I told in the homily. I just didn't want to share generally. So I thought I would say part two will come now. Part of that was a, a way to get you to stay. <laughs> <laughs> but also I, I realized those of us who would be willing to stay, to be a little more generous with the Lord, to be here. So thank you. Thank you for staying to pray. We cannot overestimate the value of praying with the Lord. Um, so I had shared with you this experience I had, this unusual grace of uh, some sort of an illumination of conscience while I was praying at Calvary. And uh, I shared that homily. I had Mass in four different parishes this weekend. And I shared that homily at a parish early this morning after Mass. A woman comes up to me in tears, just thanking me. What you said touched me so deeply. And then she says, when you said that in two weeks in the equinox, the world is going to end. And I never said that, you know, <laughs> that happens to a priest. Some, you know, like people hear things that you don't say. Okay. So I was glad for the opportunity to clarify. I'm not claiming the world is going to end. Even the alleged prophecies of the three days darkness and the illumination of con I'm not sure if that's really going to happen. I, I tried to look into the people claiming that, and it's not clear. Um, on one level, it doesn't really matter. Because if it's going to happen or not happen, it doesn't change what we need to do. And that is to live our faith. To do what we can to come close to Jesus, right? So that's the, uh, the end of that. The takeaway, the great takeaway. Um, so there's a, a residual effect of that experience I had. And that's what I want to share with you. Um, you can imagine having the, the grace of an illuminated conscience... The, the grace to understand, maybe on a deeper level, the ugliness of sin, the presence of selfishness in so much, and how painful that was like spiritually painful. And particularly because kneeling so close to that hole where the cross of Jesus went into the earth, there's a, a love that still radiates from that location, that love that Jesus displayed on the cross. And so really that's, that's the main experience. The main experience is an experience of this tremendous agape love. And the effect of that agape love is a deeper awareness of what's not love in your heart, a deeper awareness of selfishness. And um, there, there were a few moments I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it was that intense. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that says something about my life <laughs> of sin, but just, and again, it wasn't a feeling of condemnation, but it was just this reality of the, the love of Jesus on the cross. And 
there's a residual effect of that experience, and that's what I wanted to share in this holy hour. Um, and it's, it's not just me, but I know it's even happened sometimes to other priests that when you are standing at the altar and you have the prayers that you have to pray as the priest, sometimes it will happen that the Lord allows you to experience the inner reality of those moments, the inner reality of those moments. And I wanted to share with you a couple of those moments. Um, sometimes when the priest says, this is my body given for you. Given for you. The, the, the sentiment, sentiment of Jesus' heart when he says those words, this expression of him giving himself, is it, that can be so painful because that is a very selfless moment. And in those moments, especially as a priest, you are so aware of the disparity between what Jesus is saying there and the reality of your own life. When he says, this is the chalice of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, there's this expression of sacrifice. Right? The blood is poured out through every wound, beginning in the agony in the garden, the nail wounds in his feet and in his hands, the crown of thorns on his head, probably his tears. He experienced the blood of his tears, and then, of course, the piercing of his sacred heart, the blood in the water that came out. And, and again, the, the inner dynamic of Jesus's self-gift in that moment. We have just a touch of understanding. It's so intense and painful. This radical gift of self for the other, which includes all of us. It includes the church. It includes the bride, the church, but it includes all of us. Um, is tremendous. Another moment which is so difficult is the breaking of the bread. Now we know at the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, we're told that Jesus took, gave thanks, broke, blessed, and gave, right? Those verbs, those same verbs will happen at the Last Supper. Took, gave thanks, which is in Greek, Eucharist, gave thanks, Eucharist, blessed, broke, and gave. That breaking, that breaking is for the sake of giving, for the sake of giving. You can imagine in some churches in history, they had one loaf of Eucharistic bread, and then each little piece was broken off of. It's still an option, but for a big mass, it's not practical. But that moment of breaking, and it can happen for the priest standing at the altar. Sometimes if there's a microphone on the altar, and you can hear and you hear the sound of the host breaking? So we know that on the cross, Jesus was not broken, right? They, they broke the legs of the good thief and the bad thief, but they did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And it said in the Psalms, not a bone of his will be broken. But there, there is this breaking of Jesus, the Eucharist. Now we know 
that at that moment, we're not hurting Jesus. Like when you chew the host, you're not hurting him. It's a mystical, sacramental presence of the Lord. But there is this moment of the breaking and to, to be the one who has to do it as the priest. And again, it doesn't happen at every Mass, but sometimes it'll happen. There's like a grace to be a little more sensitive and aware of the spiritual meaning of that breaking. That breaking. And you know that sometimes if somebody hurts another person, we would express that hurt by, you broke my heart, you know. We think of that heart of Jesus that's pierced with the lance. We think of that he's breaking, he's been broken. Seems like an appropriate metaphor for him taking all of the sin of the world onto the cross, including our own sins. All of our sins were taken and that produced a breaking, a breaking in Jesus. But the, the breaking is always for the sake of the giving so even the breaking is connected to this movement of Jesus' heart of giving himself. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are sinful. He knows that we are imperfect. He knows better than we do that we are deeply selfish. Deeply selfish. So I have no doubt there's a purgatory. <laughs> In purgatory, the, love, the agape love of God will purify all of that selfishness that selfishness cannot stand in the presence of the God who is all love. And so that breaking and giving and the inner, the inner movement of Jesus' will to give of himself for us. You know, they say in theology, his life wasn't taken from him. Because he is true God and true man, he said, I have the power to lay it down. He gave himself. More than his life being taken from him, he offered it. He gave it. He fulfilled all the sacrifices. There is no more need for any sacrifice but the one sacrifice of Jesus. And so that one sacrifice of Jesus, on the one hand, it happened in, in history and it, it's done. On another hand, because of his divinity, there's an aspect of his sacrifice that remains open to all of us. That he gives us the privilege and honor of uniting our sacrifice to his. And I think in that way, we become less selfish. We become less self-centered. We start to acquire the spirit of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus. We start to get purged of all of the ideas that are from our culture and our upbringing that are not from the gospel and become more and more transformed by the gospel, by the message, by our faith, that we would become living reflections of the Lord. And this is beautiful. It's painful. It's intense. It's mystical. It's deep. But it's so beautiful that the Lord would love us in this way that the depths of his love are beyond all comprehension. So I love some of the language in the diary of St. Faustina, that divine mercy saint. She'll use words like the abyss of your love, you know, the ocean of your mercy, you know, like the, this language that it, it struggles to articulate the idea of God's infiniteness, limitlessness, his eternal love. And that we would be invited into that. It, it can be painful 
when you see people at Mass, maybe receiving communion appears to be distracted or not aware of what's happening. A certain lack of reverence or focus. It's so painful um, to, to be in contact with something so precious and so profound. You know, um, you probably have heard people say, you know, we should probably crawl forward on our faces, you know. That would take a long time. <laughs> but just the interior disposition of reverence and awe for the Lord. And so we thank Him for that, you know, that the depths that He calls us to. And um, probably the reason why there's so much bad happening in the world is because we have failed. You know, you think of the history of the church. You think of Christian Europe. It was nothing but war after war after war amongst allegedly Christian people, allegedly Catholic people. You think of Northern Ireland. You think of Rwanda. Think of, you know, and so it's possible for people to be going to church and completely miss it. Seems like the 12 apostles were like that, huh? <laughs> so we need the Lord's grace. We need his, his mercy to you know, pull us deeper deeper into the mystery of his love, that we would start to be less selfish and more selfless, that we would assimilate and acquire his interior disposition, that the sacraments would have the effect in our souls, helping us to grow and to be more and more like him. Amen. Amen. So I'll be in the confessional if, if there's anyone still left over. And then Brother Pius will give a little reflection. And then we'll have some time of silence before benediction. So glad you all decided to stay and you're here. It's really great to, great to have you. Um, you know, today's readings, as Father Luke mentioned, uh, are really challenging. And I think one of the ways maybe that the readings challenge us that we're maybe not so aware of is Jesus's anger. Like, if you look at the text of the gospel, it says Jesus weaved together a whip out of cords, which means Jesus was like sitting somewhere in the corner of the temple, like working on this whip that he was getting ready to use on the people in the temple. So like, you're just, at least for me, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, he was angry. And he's sitting, he's weaving this thing, right? And we can have in our minds, forgive the pun on my name, an overly pious view of Jesus that strips him of his humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man, which means he got frustrated. He got frustrated a lot with the 12 apostles. He was like, how, how long am I going to be with you? And you're not going to get it. I think um, the show The Chosen, which is fantastic, if you haven't watched it, it's very, very good. And I don't remember uh, whether it's in season four that's coming up that uh, I've, I've gotten to see or whether it was previously, but Jesus predicts his passion. If you look in the gospel, Jesus predicts his passion. And immediately the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. Like Jesus is sharing something that's intimate, something that's painful. 
I, I think we can often go through our spiritual lives and maybe reading the gospel and sort of have this idea that Jesus is above it all. I can't stand the movies and the shows and all the things where it's like, Jesus is sort of like, well, don't worry, la-di-da, you know? No, he experienced real human emotions in the depth of himself. And he redeemed them. Every emotion, every emotion is morally neutral. What does that mean? It is not a sin to get angry. It's not a sin to feel hopeless. It's not a sin to feel sad or depressed or afraid. It's not a sin to feel joyful. There are some people, especially people who've suffered from severe trauma or who've suffered a loss of someone they love, who feel guilty because they're laughing and their loved one isn't there. And they're like, I, I don't deserve to feel happy. How can I laugh when they're gone? But the truth of the matter is that Jesus takes all of our emotional experience, all of it. He lived it. He felt it. He weeps when Lazarus dies. He feels frustrated and angry. He feels tremendous, tremendous joy at times. I can't imagine that Jesus was super serious at the wedding feast of Cana. Everybody had quite a bit of wine, so much so they had to make more, right? Jesus made more. And so my encouragement for us, here's a little what we call in psychology, a, a little bit of psychoeducation. Emotions are like waves. Love that noisemaker, the waves, right? Emotions are like waves. The feeling rises up in us, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it reaches a peak, and then it drops off. And for us, the emotion is neutral. It's what you do with the emotion that can make it an act of virtue or an act of vice. If you feel angry and you bring your anger to the Lord and you pray for the person making you angry, you just were virtuous. If you get angry and you punch somebody in the nose, <laughs> definitely not good, right? But I think what's so important for us is to not exile our emotions. It's to not exile the parts of ourselves that feel pain, that maybe feel joy. Whatever it is that's going on in your heart, here's the trick. I'm going to give you the super secret ninjutsu knowledge of the spiritual life on your emotions. Are you ready? Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, want you to bring it to them. And the moment you start experiencing a difficult emotion, an uncomfortable feeling. Let's say you're tempted to lust, you're tempted to pride, you're tempted to anger. So often that we pathologize or make sinful the temptation itself. Temptation is only temptation. It only becomes sin 
when you attach your will to it, when you make a decision negatively based off of it. So if, for example, a person feels lustful, okay, they acknowledge the beauty or handsomeness of the person that they're experiencing it about. Well, if they sit there and they think about it and roll it over and over again in their mind and start toying with the temptation, there's the problem. If you feel angry and you spend your time over and over again thinking, yeah, that guy is a jerk. That guy is a jerk. I can't believe Father Luke called me Yoda in his homily. What a jerk. <laughs> I actually don't mind. Um, if I did, and I roll it over in my mind, and I get angrier and angrier and angrier, or more and more bitter, right? Somebody hurt me years ago, and I take that hurt, and I like hold on to it. And I say, I will never forgive someone who did this to me. I will grant you there are things that happen in people's lives. I'm sure that there are people in this room, in this chapel, who've had things happen in their lives that it is almost, nope, it is impossible for you to forgive on your own. It requires a miracle of grace sometimes. People I've known who've suffered horrific things in their lives. It's impossible to do it on your own. But the moment we take these feelings, these things that are so difficult for us to manage, and we bring them into dialogue with the Father, we bring them into dialogue with Jesus, we bring them into the space of begging the Holy Spirit to give us what we need to be able to do whatever He asks of us, to endure whatever He asks of us, those emotions, those feelings, those things, those, those bitter hurts that are in our hearts, that becomes the stuff of prayer. See, this is the beauty. And if you look at the Psalms, they are literally the whole range of every possible human emotion. From elated joy to the depths of the emotion, not the sin, but the emotion of despair. The emotion of despair comes to you when you realize that there is a good that you want that you can never have. I'll give you a great example of the emotion of despair for Brother Pius. When I was a kid, I played basketball a lot. I would be every day in my driveway up until it was so cold in the winter that my basketball would land in the snow. I would shake off the snow, bounce off the snow until I couldn't feel my fingers because I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan. The bad news for young brother Pius was, I'm not tall enough, and I'm not nearly good enough to be the next Michael Jordan. I hate to break it to me. <laughs> I will never make it to the NBA, right? That's, you despair of that. And sometimes that requires a mourning. There are other things in my life that I had to mourn. The loss of. Some of you have heard me talk about my desire to be a priest and having to leave seminary, right? And to be desirous of a thing and realize at least in the moment, it's not going to happen. And the difference between the things that make us bitter, angry, small-hearted people and the things that grow our hearts, expand our hearts in generosity 
is what we do with the pain, what we do with the joy, what we do with the sorrow, what we do with our anger. I promise you, if you bring it into dialogue with Jesus in your prayer, it'll be transformed. The Lord wants for us to talk to him about it. When Jesus experienced terrible, overwhelming fear and dread in Gethsemane, his dread was so intense that physiologically he sweat blood. Do you know how stressed out you need to be to to sweat blood? It actually happens. It's the most extreme degree of stress that a human body can undergo to sweat blood. Jesus experienced that. The emotions that come with betrayal. The tremendous suffering of feeling like the Father doesn't even hear him on the cross. But what does he do? He gives us the example of bringing the pain into dialogue with the Father. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but not my will. Your will be done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To tell him how we feel about how we feel. Into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. The possibility of transforming the most difficult parts of our lives comes when we don't hide them from the Lord. When we open up our heart to him, in all the full range of everything that we're feeling. When we have the courage to say, Lord, I don't understand. I hurt. This is horrible. And you know what? I've come to realize that as nice as it is when our moms said to us as little kids, it's going to be okay. Sometimes it's not going to be okay. Most of the time, it's not going to be okay because we're in a fallen world. I'm not okay, you're not okay, and it's not okay. Okay? (laughs) But there's a way that we can have peace in that storm in our hearts. And that way forward is to bring it to Jesus. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. It's going to be hard. We're going to suffer. The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and the countless disciples throughout history experienced wonderful things, worked miracles, raised the dead, cast out devils, did all this stuff. And guess what? They weren't spared from suffering. In fact, following Jesus was the cause of their suffering. But they were able to have peace in the middle of that storm. Every storm that comes because they knew that no matter what happens, this love will never leave me. That no matter how I feel, love isn't a feeling all the time. In fact, the deepest love doesn't feel great at all. It feels horrible. 
Think about Jesus on the cross. How about something a little bit closer to home? How about taking care of a loved one who's very, very ill? How about the pain of watching the children or grandchildren that you love walk away from the faith? The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare put it. That pain. The only way to survive the pain is to bring it into dialogue with the Father, to bring it to Him, to let Him know that our heart is broken, that we're sorrowful unto death, as Jesus said. When that sorrow meets the merciful compassion of God, it becomes transformed. And we become sharers, not only in the suffering, but in the glory. So this Lent, we're halfway there, living on a prayer, in the words of Bon Jovi, right? That is how we live, brothers and sisters. That's how we survive the pain of this life, by coming to the Lord, giving Him the pain, giving Him the joys. He wants to be part of it all. Give Him permission. Open a space in your heart for dialogue, even the parts that you're afraid of. He's waiting. been listening to from the friars podcast the community of franciscan friars the renewal please visit us at franciscanfriars.com or on social media cfr underscore franciscans Thank you.